Hello and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. My guest today, Jason Wenk, started his first company, Retirement Wealth Advisors, in 2004. At the time, he had noticed a confluence of a rapidly aging population in the U.S. and the need for better wealth management tools and services. Along with a small team, he built software applications that would automatically help with key retirement decisions, mostly around income planning. The company took off, quickly reaching $100 million of client assets under management, making Jason one of the youngest founders in the industry to build a firm that size from scratch. In 20 years, the wealth management industry has greatly matured and grown, in part through the use of technology, which has streamlined both the development and management of investment products, but also their distribution and trading. But challenges abound. Revenue and cost pressures from passive strategies are driving an increased need for outsourcing. Regulation and competition are driving demand for automation at the core of trading and back office infrastructure. And both the product and distribution sides are trying to figure out how to broaden access to alternatives and private equity. The success of Retirement Wealth inspired Jason to make web-based software available to other independent financial advisors, which is how his second company, Formula Folios, was born. Formula Folios would go on to become the fastest growing RIA in the history of the industry, organically growing from zero to nearly $4 billion in AUM in just six years. Jason has never wavered on his mission to empower more people to have access to better and more affordable financial planning and wealth management. At his core, he is driven by a high level of care and empathy and a commitment to helping others. Hence the name of his latest venture, Altruist. Jason now wants to solve an even bigger problem, allow more RIAs to enter the fray through a fully vertically integrated one-stop custodial platform for account opening, trading, portfolio management, and reporting. In sum, Altruist is empowering advisors to seamlessly do their best work and help ensure clients have a better experience with their money. Altruist is backed by some of the country's top investors, including Venrock, Vanguard, and Insight Partners. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So I grew up in rural West Michigan, the farming area. The kind of funny joke, now that I'm older and I have kids, I joke and tell my kids, like, when I grew up, I had to walk uphill both ways in the snow you know, to shovel manure at a dairy farm for my first job for $2 an hour. And it sounds like one of these like fictional make-believe, like our great-grandparents did that or something, right? Or made it up. But like that is actually <laughs> a true story. So I grew up, it was so rural. There was really not much going on. Michigan's obviously a cold state. There's a big gully between my house and this dairy farm my brother and I used to work at. And so we would walk uphill both ways, right? Down the gully back up. But it was an awesome childhood. Like I look back and I think about how lucky I was that although really no one around that area had any money, but no one cared because it wasn't material things weren't particularly of value. And we had tons of fresh air, tons of land all around. You could just play and have fun and be a kid. So I really enjoyed childhood. Although again, we had pretty meager material belongings, but super happy. Mostly was raised by a single mother. So my parents divorced when I was young. And although I had a stepfather for some of my childhood, I largely was raised by my mom. So she raised three kids, worked two jobs for a lot of those years, and was like the most supportive parent. You know, so I think if I was to give some credit for the the man I eventually became, I mean, I had like the type of mom who you don't realize it as a kid, of course, but looking back, I'm like, wow, like if I'd have told her 
that I wanted to build a rocket that took people to the moon, like she would be 100% supportive. Like, you know, some parents are kind of like, well, be realistic, little Johnny, that's, uh, you should become an accountant or something. And, but my mom had like totally let us be dreamers and think big and never was really told that I couldn't do something if I wanted to. And, and then she was just a great role model because of how hard she worked and how selfless she was. Like, I definitely put her family first. And so, yeah, that was my, my childhood. But it was definitely one of these like wonder years type of upbringings in some respects. I look back now, but I was very lucky. But at the time, you know, we were also very much removed from technology. There wasn't, I didn't even have cable television or anything like that. And I grew up in the 90s. So the seminal years, the ones that kind of shaped kind of me getting into financial technology was, I'd say, Early to mid 90s is when personal computers started becoming a lot more common. We had a computer lab, we had internet, kind of mid 90s at my high school, and I just was completely captivated. So I was into sports and being outdoors and other things, but man, when when I first put keys, fingers on keyboard, and it allowed me to escape that very rural bubble that I grew up in, and, and the world became flat, and knowledge was kind of omnipresent, you know, and it was a really cool experience. So, so that's kind of like how I ended up leaving there was really like, again, once I kind of got into computers, building software, exploring the internet, it just like opened my eyes to like a huge world of opportunity. And I was super curious to get out and go explore it. But yeah, that's, that's 18 years in a nutshell. That's amazing. And I'll say this because when I talk to guests, there seems to be a common pattern in many of my entrepreneur guests grew up with a single mom. And I think it, there's something about developing and uh, very early on figuring out that you have to be in control of your destiny, right? It's not going to be handed over. You kind of have to be uh, grow into a responsible adult pretty quickly. And you also see the example of work ethic. And I've heard this several times. The other thing might not be as relevant here, but certainly that I've seen is moving around a lot. And so the ability to create ties in new communities, understand, read the room, read the landscape, develop this pattern recognition. Also, good backgrounds there, or at least there seems to be an emerging pattern there. It's interesting what you say about rule and the escape, access to the internet, access to computers. I remember my first job, I was put in charge of all data analytics. And this is early days of the internet, peak of the internet bubble, tail end of it. And there's a website young adults called bolt.com at the time. And so one of the things that emerged and was really in charge of figuring out which users were really driving traffic and activity. And it turned out that we modeled it and it was classic like 80-20 rule. But most of the core users that spent, that were very sticky and hence great targets for advertising were rural. Those that had somehow figured out how to get on the web and how to get on the website and they would spend countless hours literally connected, chatting, engaging, posting on boards. It was, very, it was a stark contrast with urban kids at the time, at least. Yeah. And by the way, so it's funny you talk about like moving around a bit. Yeah, we lived in like subsidized low-income apartments, like lived in a rural farmhouse, switched schools. Like, yes. So it's interestingly, it sounds a bit similar to some of the things you mentioned. And then obviously, yeah, the rural connection for sure, you know, so. Oddly, you know, by the way, once I left, I don't know if this is another common theme, but I, I left at 18, like never turned back, so to speak. And, but now recently turned 40 and like, I find myself really enjoying going back home. 
bought a cottage back in the near where I grew up and now bring my kids back there and still have family back there. And I actually really, really, it's like a nostalgic kind of going back in a time capsule to the place I grew up. But for 20 years, it was just like, hey, get me to California, get the center of the universe of technological innovation. And yeah, and kind of felt like I would never look back. But yeah, here I am going back there pretty regularly nowadays. Well, something could be said about your roots, right? And certainly going back to what it all started, that's probably almost like therapeutic, right? On some level. So you're definitely starting to gravitate towards like building your technology chops. And what are the types of things you're getting involved with? Like you say, the internet, computers, coding, what are the first things you gravitate towards? And does that shape your DNA at the time or not yet? Were you sort of dabbling in many different things? Yeah, I mean, so I think like probably a lot of kids, the first thing that was captivating was were video games. And mind you, like the first computers I was working on didn't have Windows. So we're working in DOS prompt and essentially very, very different world in the world we live in today. But then I remember seeing Linux for the first time and kind of like experiencing open source. Like you can see other people's work, build your own kind of rudimentary games. And and so it was super captivating. Um, hardware was interesting to me too. So like we'd my brother and I would tear machines apart, rebuild them. We're super curious about how they build. We would switch out upgrade memory and and just kind of fiddle. So typical hacker tinkerers. And the big kind of aha moment really was more when the internet started to become a, a bit more, it went from like dial up to like the first version of high speed, you know, land-based connections. And, and at that point, I was enthralled with web development, not so much apps, but just even like building websites and, you know, like a uh, better understanding back then, you know, there was like ways to, to frame out web apps and make certain applications custom. I mean, so there's a lot of like little things. I remember building a whole bunch of, this is going to really age me, but a bunch of MySpace HTML themes that my friends could use for their backgrounds. And so just a little bit of everything. The thing that kind of got me into the work I do now was I was always a good math student. And so it became uh, pretty clear when I was in college, I studied computer science when I was in school and uh, that probably I wasn't going to be a video game developer. I wasn't going to be a front end developer. Although back then, pretty much all of us were full stack. The design elements weren't particularly high fidelity compared to what they are today, but, but ended up kind of really getting into data. So like, I just was fascinated by math, like the solving of complex problems. And then like the superpowers that computers could give you to solve problems that would be otherwise extraordinarily challenging, time-consuming to do long form. So would you say that, and this is not to fast forward and we'll talk about your various business endeavors, but would you say you're more of a product founder or someone who really gravitates as you've evolved, like you became more of a go-to-market, understanding the market? understanding how to structure distribution, understanding how to do deals. Is it all of these or do you have a fundamental product DNA as a person? Yeah, I've never thought a ton about it, but I can say that I think of myself as someone who I'm a generally very curious person. So I wouldn't say I'm a specialist necessarily in any one thing. Although in the early parts of my career, I was very much a, I was a technologist. You know, I just, I, feel, I viewed myself as an engineer. I didn't think I was going to be an entrepreneur, by the way. I just thought I'd be a, a developer. But as I thinking about problems. Like I just wanted to solve problems. And I realized like not all problems could be solved. If you only wore engineer's hat, you did have to start thinking about hiring and managing people. And you had to think about, well, I could build the greatest product in the world, but if nobody knows about it, like, so how do I 
build a high efficacy client acquisition strategy. And especially because again, like the, the internet became this like really interesting thing. Like it became this huge like Rubik's cube where it's like, how do I get this amazing tool to do all of these things for me? So I could build applications, but how can I also use it to find customers and automate tasks so I can serve them at scale? And so I think over the years, my role really has evolved. I mean, today you wouldn't dare put me at a terminal and ask me to build a product anymore, at least as an engineer. As a product manager, I'm probably too impatient. Like I'm a bit more of a macro thinker and I want to go fast. So it's kind of an oxymoron, but that's maybe not wouldn't make for the world's greatest product manager. And I'm still a bit socially awkward. So I wouldn't say I'm a natural salesperson, right? But I've tried to really be self-aware. Like hey, I've got a few strengths. I've got a lot of weaknesses. So I'm like, get better at the things I, I'm not good at. But if there's like a common thread here, it's like just, I really love to solve problems. You know, so if I find a problem and it's an intellectually stimulating problem, like I can go down the rabbit hole and stay down there for a long time, for decades, which is kind of what's happened for most of my career. I, I don't bounce around much. I'm still trying to solve some of the same problems I started trying to solve 20 plus years ago. That's awesome. And so what was the first notable problem from a business standpoint that you first sunk your teeth in? Yes. So I think my first, really my only job I've ever really had was I took a job at a very young age at Morgan Stanley. And most of the work there, I was pretty far removed like personal finance. I was working a lot more on application development initially, and then getting a little bit into applications specifically around research and trading. And although it was like an incredible learning experience, like one of the things that dawned on me was none of the people that I grew up with None of the people in rural Oceana County, Western Michigan, like none of them were going to benefit from the work I was doing. In fact, I think in some respects, some of the arbitrage type work that I was working on, sort of statistical arbitrage, was almost really designed to take advantage of human behavior that was destructive, right? I mean, if, if people don't understand how markets work, markets are essentially zero sum to the mean, or sum to the mean is probably a better way of putting it. So if the average of like the S&P 500 is 10% and one person makes 12, someone else has to make eight, right? Minus whatever fees they might be paying. So not everybody can outperform, right? Like in order for some people to outperform, some people have to underperform. And so a lot of the arbitrage was like, okay, well, understanding how people will behave, which will likely cause them to either buy times they shouldn't or sell at times they shouldn't and capitalizing on those emotional-based trades became a really simple arbitrage, you know, sort of a trend-following arbitrage. And anyway, so when this happened, like I just sort of looked at it and I thought, is this really what I want to do with my life? Like, is it, I just want to make rich people richer. And, and I felt like a real, like incredibly guilty that people like my own parents, like my mom, who I talked about being, you know, one of the most important people in my life, like by, by far. And the fact that like for her, she's just kind of a blue collar worker, worked at a factory and had a 401k and probably put her what she could, you know, into the, into the 401k, didn't really know a ton about investing or money, certainly couldn't get a financial advisor, didn't have the kind of resources to afford one or hit their minimums. And so the big aha moment for me was, was like, what if I took some of the knowledge I've gained and some of the skills that I have? And what if I could build something that would help the average person that all they have is a 401k, they don't have the kind of money to go do discretionary money management to be buying alternative assets and investing as LP in funds and things like that, like just regular people like the people I grew up with, right? So my first real project was website that allowed people to go online. They could initially I didn't have a whole lot of data. So they could tell me where they worked and I could if I had access to their company 401k plan, I could I already knew what their their investment options were. If I didn't have access to it, 
I, they could upload sort of their investment options. I built this massive database of tens of thousands of retirement plans and what the holdings were. It was a bit dated because I was using like OCR to literally read PDFs like back when that technology was really, really bad. So it was a bit of a janky product, but I had to do a little bit of manual work on the database. And over time, what happened was I could pretty predictably tell you what was in the, what the investment options were in 4K plans at, I'd say it's a substantial number of like large companies across the United States. But the product was, you come to the website, you answer a few questions, and then it tells you what to do with your 401k plan. And a simple subscription is like $20 or $19 a month or something like that. So I tried to make it affordable, really accessible, and something that anybody could benefit from. And at that time, you know, that's also how I had to learn a little bit about like internet marketing. This was the early 2000s. And so it was amazing. I, I think entrepreneurs today would probably salivate at what the market was like back then. But SEO was really easy. You could, you could gain the algorithms pretty easily. So it wasn't too hard to be found. Pay-per-click and paid search performance marketing was that term didn't exist yet. But it was, re- it was amazing, right? You could buy traffic for pennies. So it was very easy to like have a CAC that was under a dollar. And so the, your payback period was instantaneous. Or even if you offered a short trial, like it'd be like 30, 40 days type of thing. So that was kind of the, the first business. And, and it actually worked really well. I had thousands of people who signed up. And I thought I was going to be like legitimately, like I, I unfortunately I did like the linear math on this. And, and I was like, oh my gosh, like at this pace, like, and within three years, like the whole world will be using my product. Of course, it doesn't work out like that. But, but it was kind of my first way of kind of saying, here's a big problem. The average person doesn't have enough money, doesn't have liquid money to go hire financial advisors. All they have is like their company 401k plan. They don't have sort of geographically, many of them might live in areas that they don't even have access to people to help with. They don't know people to help, but the internet was making it really easy for people to look online and look for help. And I built a tool that made it easy for them to get some advice. So that was the first product I built from scratch. It was a lot of fun. That's so many things to unpack here. First of all, very noble cause to pursue. And I love, and it's been in our conversations prior, and you've shared sort of this commitment. You know, you talk about guilt and building trading models that take advantage of human behavior, but wanted to actually solve for democratization of financial services, knowledge and know-how, which I think is still an issue, right? And I love that, that it's a big motivation. I think the first question that I have is, so you describe how you went about thinking and building this, I mean, are we talking about, I have this image of the Spotify biopic, this is a Swedish biopic, and whatever you think of the result, I'm a huge fan of Spotify. So like seeing his early days, Daniel's early days, and he's like in his room, like literally (laughs) wearing nothing but like underwear and a t-shirt, and he's like eating pizza, and it's just like cranking away. And it's right around the same time that you're describing, right? It's like, and figuring out how to hack the SEO. And was that the setup at the time or did you have a team or was there a group together there? Yeah, no, so it was just me. And yeah, I was probably like a year or two maybe before Daniel. As far as when I was doing that venture, it was like probably two thousand maybe like one or two or three or something, right? But yeah, like the story by the way is the only big difference by the way is like I actually had gotten my then girlfriend pregnant when we were in college. So I had a baby at home. I was completely broke. I'd quit my job at Morgan Stanley. So whatever I'd saved, I spent through really quickly, like within a few months. No one in my family had any money. So I couldn't get like angel funding. There was no VC community in the Midwest or investor community. So like that was just completely it. Yeah. It was like 
20 plus hour days. And, but very similar. I can tell you that I remember the, the very distinctly, we had a, a bank account that had a $600 overdraft and all my credit cards were maxed out and I would live in that overdraft. So like, it wasn't like I was living and going, gosh, I'm almost out of money. It was like, I knew I was out of money. I was fully leveraged. And it would, you know, there'd be days I'd look at it and go, we have negative $577. Like I can't even go to the ATM machine and take out a $20 bill, whatever, like it'll reject it. And so couldn't have any social life, never like went to the bar or bought beer. Like, yeah, it was like buying the cheapest dollar frozen pizzas and whatever, and, and sort of sustaining on that for a couple of years. But yeah, things started working out, fortunately, and it was bootstrapped, right? Obviously, there was no external money. So like, it's amazing what's possible if you, you know, give yourself a few options. And, and I will say like, it actually fairly quickly started generating a pretty meaningful amount of cash flow. So yeah, it sounds like a really horrible, sad sob story for a bit there, but it was really lean for a couple of years. It was painful, not gonna lie. But, but it was amazing how quickly it ascended out of that really tough couple of years stretch. What did that stretch really, I mean, there's a lot there in terms of responsibilities, right? I mean, presumably, like you have a child, you're responsible for a human being, you got to figure out how to make this thing work. What this phase in your life really teach you on a going forward? What did you draw from those days? What were the things where you're like, I will never do X, Y, and Z, or, and also like these, this is the ABC that I really, really learned and that I've kept in my cards all throughout? Well, I can say that like I would have, I'm not sure I felt this way at the time. I mean, I remember basically being under immense stress and, but there's a certain calm, I suppose, about it because like the one thing that that I do recall is, you know, there's no real opportunity cost. So if you're going to, if there's ever a time that you can and should do those things, it's look, I was, I was young and broke. So it was like, I wasn't going to get any broker, (laughs) more broke, like I was already broke. So to me, and I was young. So like the one thing I had on my side was time. I've been very fortunate that I've never required a lot of sleep. So working extremely long days was not that hard to do for me. And I had like this belief, there was somebody I worked with actually at, at Morgan that his name was Ron and a delightful human being. And Ron was like one of the hardest workers. I mean, like he was one of these people who definitely um, taught me a lot about work ethic because if I would come in at 5.30, he would be there and I'd go, gosh, I better come in at five tomorrow. And I'd come in at five and he'd be there. <laughs> I'd come in at 4.30 tomorrow and he'd be there at 4.30 and I'd just like, I'm like, wow, this guy's like a, a machine. But I remember like asking him about that and he kind of had this comment. He says, look, a million things I cannot control. There's one that I can and that one thing I control is my effort. So if I give everything I have, and if it doesn't work, I can't, I'll never feel bad because I didn't try. Right? I want to fail for lack of effort and something so simple and rudimentary. And, but like, that's like really stuck in my head ever since. And I mean, honestly, every, even today, many years later, you know, having sold companies and don't have the financial pressure I had at that time, but still have this like healthy paranoia that what if someone's out there is outworking me? And that's about the only thing I can control. There's a lot of stuff I can't. So that was my attitude was sort of like, okay, I'm I'm going to give it something I have. I mean, what do I have to lose? Not much, right? And what's the worst that could happen? The worst that could happen was I work extremely hard and get burned out a bit. And then I go get a job at some bank or something like that. Like I always figured I was employable, but I prefer not to be. So I didn't have much fear of uh, failure. That being said, what's funny is about seven, eight months in, it's after I started making money, I started experiencing really serious churn. 
And then it led to a whole different, it was a weird type of stress where it's like you go from probably making 20, 25,000 a month of free cash flow at a young age to all of a sudden seeing that number decline every month because of churning and you're confused. And that's when I like, sat there and I was like, okay, I've got to really figure out like why this is happening. And that almost like was more stressful because it felt like I made it. I finally got this thing to start working. It's growing. And then it plateaued and then started to decline. And that's a pretty hard pill to swallow. It just it's the curse of the quant strategy, as I like to call it. It's just you get started, you got a strategy, it works, and then you get two flat months, and then the wheels start spinning, and you're like, is it the model? Is it the market? Is it me? What's going on? Yeah, no, and same thing with businesses. When you start hitting some kind of air pocket or you've just milked whatever initial alpha, quote unquote, there was in that initial phase and then someone else somewhere is doing the same thing and they're eating away at it or whatever it is. But yeah, no, I can really relate on, I always coined it as whether my first business, I would always tell the team and I still tell myself and I use this, I say, if we've done a hundred percent of what we could do and what we had control over to prepare for, I remember we sold the company, that my first company at Adobe. And so with the team, we flew, flew out to San Francisco we were in New York at the time and we prepared like no tomorrow, like really, really prepared, over prepared. And I told everyone on the plane, everyone, I'd ask everyone to like reread the slides and be prepared about their section. And, and I said, we have done a hundred percent of what we could do. Like there's nothing else we can do at this stage. Right. And so if they decide they don't want to do this deal, then whatever. But at least you know that whatever you can control, you've done. You And so if it does fail, you're not going to be like wallowing in, oh, I should have done this or I should have done that. And I think it's very, very important. Ties into a, another point. Obviously, you've done well and you've been successful repeatedly. And it's almost at this stage, right? My question would be like, what continues to drive you? We talked about like, I don't want to be outperformed by anyone. Essentially, at this stage, it's kind of like when you look at, let's say, Lewis Hamilton, for example, right? He's fighting against himself, right? It's like every day he's going out and he's trying to beat himself. He's trying to outperform what he's already accomplished. So how do you keep that edge? Yeah, I mean, so I've never been mentioned or even questioned in the same sentence as uh, Lewis Hamilton, so very flattering. But yeah, I would say, yeah, completely different, totally different worlds of, of sports, so to speak. But I think, I can't mention this before, but I think there's, I'm a naturally pretty optimistic person. I think to be a, a founder, you have to be. But I think that you also have to have like just a little bit of paranoia. I mean, you have to be like, as soon as you lose that paranoia and you get comfortable and cozy, like you've probably in the process or have already lost your edge. And I'm not sure that it's healthy to stay on edge, by the way, your whole life it might be pretty unhealthy, really. But I think it's a genetic disposition for me. I um, have always been a pretty competitive person, not in a, like a aggressive way. Like some people are sort of aggressively competitive. I just, I've always kind of had a mindset like, if I'm going to do something, it's going to take a certain amount of time and effort. Why wouldn't I want to get the, the most out of that time and effort? Like the, to spend, like work is a great example, like to commit decades of your life to something to just coast, like just, I don't understand people who do that, I guess. So, you know, so it's a, a bit of a hardwired thing that's hard to explain, but I 100% agree that like you have to have the edge and you have to keep it for a long time. If you have certain ambitions and I think the ambitions I have at, at this point aren't really, they're not financial, they're much more around impact and legacy. And sadly, I think I'm kind of hitting that second half of my life where I start to realize that I'm quite, quite mortal, you know, so you know, what example am I setting for my kids? And can I give back to my 
the community I'm from or communities I'm in, help other entrepreneurs, but whether it's investor, mentor, board member. And so there's just a lot of things where I think if you lose that focus, which is very, very easy to do, the odds of all of those things that like in my case, I'm ambitious to accomplish or to do or to see happen, I'm um, a lot less likelihood. And so I'm just not, I'm not tired yet. I guess there, there'll be a day that I'm tired. And when I'm tired, I'll probably slow down. Yeah, but right now I'm not tired yet. That's awesome. So what ended up happening? So you went through that air pocket and saw things kind of decreasing every month. Like what was the outcome of that effort and that venture? Yes, it's interesting. It, it kind of like, so the insight, by the way, what I learned was it had nothing to do with like the investment model. The investment model was quite simple, actually. It was like largely just efficient frontier, you know, stay diverse and wasn't trying to beat the market, so to speak, as much as helping make sure that people don't do harm to themselves by being in risk and appropriate portfolios and not staying committed to them. So pretty straightforward concept. But therein lied part of the problem is that like, if you ask them to pay you $20 a month for you to tell them how to allocate their 401k, and then every month for their, their next six, seven, eight, nine months, you tell them just to keep doing the same thing, why would they keep paying you for it? <laughs> yeah, there's the, the dilemma there. And so, so what ended up happening was I sort of doing like unsubscribe or cancellation exit surveys. Um, hey, why did you cancel? Like, what could we do? If I did a detailed newsletter, would that be more, give you something of additional value? I mean, just trying to figure out like, was it a product deficiency, so to speak? And what I learned was really interesting. I learned a couple of things. One is I learned that the average customer was a lot older than I thought. I was in my early 20s. I thought, hey, this would be a great tool for other people like me, people that are still early in their career, just kind of starting their investing. They don't have a million dollars yet for a big wealth manager. But what I learned was quite the opposite. The typical customer was someone in their 50s that was like very worried and nervous about their retirement. That's why they were going online and searching for things around their 401k and retirement investing advice, and how to allocate their, how to invest their 401k, how to protect their 401k, right? These different long tail phrases that would lead them to the site. And they oftentimes actually had a fair bit of money. I mean, a few hundred thousand dollars or more was pretty common. And again, this was 20 years ago. So a few hundred thousand dollars then is similar to someone having almost a million today. So these were reasonably mass affluent customers. And then the common thread too is there was a meaningful number of people that would say, I would pay you more if you would just do this for me. In other words, like you sending me an email telling me what to do every month is not something I'm that interested in. But like if you just took care of my 401k and, and my money in general, like I'd much rather pay you for that and I'd pay you a lot more. And, and so kind of like the aha moment was like, okay, I've got to figure out like, how do I do that? And at the time, I didn't know anything about the licensures that were needed and like, how do you actually deploy advice to people? I hadn't really been trained in that. I was more of a quant investment systems developer. That was what, what, what I, where I felt comfortable. So it just let me down a rabbit hole. Again, I, I kind of like back then there was very, very few registered investment advisors, which is a type of financial advisor, independent advisor, where you can kind of own your own directly registered either with the state or the SEC investment firm. Yeah, but I learned how to do it. So I did all my own paperwork and paid some consultant like 500 bucks to help me to make sure I didn't totally mess it up. And then registered a firm with the state of Michigan. And my intention was, hey, I'm going to go to these same types of customers I'm finding through the internet that need help with their 401ks. I'm going to offer like actual direct advice to them. And so my first company, it's funny because the name of it, you'd think it was like, not very high tech and like, why the heck would someone like me form it? But it was shaped by like, I learned a lot about these early customers. So I started a company called Retirement Wealth Advisors. And I thought, well, the reason is because all the people 
that are telling me they would want to pay someone like more money. And what I learned, by the way, by more money was like back then, it was pretty common for people to pay 1% if you would help them manage their money. So again, as a mathematician, I started doing this math and I got, gosh, a couple hundred people with half a million dollars is a hundred million dollars at 1%. It's a million dollars a year of revenue. And I could do that from my like, whatever apartment. That's a pretty good business. At least that's what the way my mind worked back then, you know? And so, so yeah, so that's how my part, my first company was my first real, real company was really born out of like watching the first venture fail. Because if I would have kept going with the first venture, the pay-per-click was starting to get more expensive. There was getting more crowded. People were selling other services and bidding against me. And so like acquisition costs getting higher, the market performing better, the stock market started performing better. So by the time you got to like 2003, four, five, we were coming out of the dot-com crash during the sort of post-dot-com crash. People were super paranoid and looking online for help and they're willing to pay for it. When the market's zooming along, people were less like interested in paying 20 bucks a month for something to help them with their 401k, right? So there's a number of things that like were leading that business towards like, maybe it could have sustained and been a, a little $10,000 a month cash flowing kind of autopilot business. But in my head, I thought I can turn this into something much more substantial. So launched that company. Again, it was just me at first and taking on clients. And it took a little while, but I built a pretty meaningful firm for like a self-trained non-finance person went from basically zero to a hundred million dollars in assets in about four years, which was very unusual at that time. Yeah. So for like by the time 2007 hit, like I had a $110, million of client assets that I managed and, and I was a practicing like wealth manager. It was kind of the business, but very serendipitous, right? I didn't, didn't intend to be there, but that was kind of how it ended up, ended up that way. But so there's a few questions that I had along the way. One is more philosophical and going back to a lot of what drives you and you made a comment around well if you your business is actually telling people do not trade if you trade you're likely to make poor decisions you're likely to try to time the market and you're likely to underperform and you're likely to harm your prospects from a retirement standpoint contrast that with businesses that are essentially centered around the premise that they need to encourage people to trade, right? If you take fundamentally a Robinhood, a Coinbase, a Wall Street bulge bracket firm, the reason they sell you sell-side research encouraging you to buy puts in December and January, right? It's because they want to sell those puts, right? There's a, a perverse incentive there to get you to trade in ways that ultimately are going to hurt your long-term prospects. So what are your views on that? Because that's if, going back to your comment about right, if the S&P 500 is up 10%, more likely actually it is that you're going to have a very, very small number of people that are outperforming it by like 20, 30% times an expectation that's very low. The vast majority of people are going to underperform the market. And that net, the average is like that 10%. So it goes back to that initial statement you made. Like, I was wondering what your thoughts are on that ecosystem that you're a part of, right? I mean, as a wealth manager, you need to be aware of like, what are all the other constituents? Because it also impacts your cost of doing business at the end of the day when you're, for example, trying to advise customers not to make moves or you're rebalancing portfolios and interacting with those businesses that trade for a living. Yeah, I and mean, I think super well put. I think, look, I wish I had all the answers, but the reality I think is that it's not a whole lot different than why do people pursue being 
a professional athlete. Like the odds are incredibly stacked against them. Most people, most people won't make varsity high school team. Certainly very small, low single digit percentage will ever play any form of collegiate sport, any at any division level. And then a fraction of a fraction, right? Measured perhaps in mills of people will ever play professionally. And even if they do, right, the typical professional athlete's career lasts something like four years, right? And yet think about like how many people they spend decades like pursuing those dreams, you know? Investing is maybe similar in the sense that there's plenty of empirical evidence to suggest that, that most people should just buy index funds, make them diversified. Maybe there's some compelling evidence that suggests they could have some factor tilts at a, in a very modest way, perhaps. And they should just focus on keeping their costs low and their taxes to a minimum and sort of locating the assets in the right places to kind of maximize their use, like the, the efficiency of how they grow and the efficiency of how they kind of get spent down, right? But in spite of all of that evidence, like, yeah, you have this entire system that exists to encourage and capitalize on people not doing those things, right? So yeah, it's a total conundrum. And look, yeah, there's media that doesn't help. I mean, like, what's the point of CNBC? Like, there's almost, there's virtually no practical benefit to like that network, right? Or many of the daily periodicals, newsletters, et cetera. And, and I'm to pick on CNBC, but I'm just kind of like saying like a, a name people might be familiar with, like, like all those things do is they conjure greed or fear and then might get people to take, you know, make decisions and behavioral kind of influence how they manage their money. So, so yeah, so I think like, look, if this is partly why I say like, I, I noticed problems 20 plus years ago, I've never, I haven't been able to solve them. It's an incredibly complex problem because obviously there are some people who can create alpha being a, someone who's, who's a bit, I have a hard time not being data-driven. So, so I do believe like it takes like, many decades before you can actually determine if someone was just had skill or if it was just luck or an unsustainable edge. So yeah, so, so I think like that's a bit of a challenge. Like in and that's not one that like technology necessarily solves. But there are things that I think most of my life's work has been, hey, how do we make a difference? Because we should understand that it's the same reason why people don't eat like salads and exercise five days a week and drink less alcohol and don't smoke and do drugs. I mean like the point is simply like there's a lot of things people should do that they don't do. There's a lot of things people shouldn't do that they still do. I think if we understand that, the behavioral part of how we make decisions, what, what we should do if we're trying to build solutions and solve problems is kind of go, okay, well, how can we make things better within the, like, with the understanding that we can't change people. People are going to behave the way people behave for hundreds of years. So again, the oversimplified way of saying that, by the way, using like my salad example, is if someone's like, hey, listen, like, Jason, I don't care. There's nothing you're ever going to tell me that's going to make me stop eating cheeseburgers. I love them. That's what I love. So I'm going to keep eating them. So Jason, don't try to sell me a salad or some tofu or whatever, right? Like I am going to eat burgers. I'm like, okay, okay. So, so I think then the solution is good. It's like, okay, how can we make that person happy? Like how can we fulfill them while making sure that the, like the burger they're eating is not like the worst possible unhealthy, like massive burger ever, right? That creates all sorts of problems and all sorts of bad, bad kind of things in it. And I think like, apply that to finance, right? Like, okay, understanding that people are going to be people and they're going to make certain decisions and it's going to be hard to control how they behave, especially like with all of these external distractions, whether it's technology, trading apps, again, buy side, sell side, research, periodicals, daily media, web media, social media ads, crazy unregulated social media influencers, fintalkers, et cetera. Like there's so many uncontrolled variables out there that we have to understand will influence the behavior of our of people that we try to help. And so knowing that, how can we still help them, right? And I think that's 
it's an incredible problem, right? Because it's not, it's certainly not ones and zeros, right? These just are things that are extraordinarily fluid and they move so quickly that nobody could possibly process all of them at once. So a very long-winded answer for you, Maxine, but I'd say like incredible, insightful question. I'm sure you have incredibly bright people on that have kind of thought about this as well. And my best answer is there's no easy solution. It is a massive problem. And if we can get more people focused on solving it, perhaps we'll make a dent over time. Yeah, and I, I think it ties back. I'm a big fan of Thaler and the nudge theories. And to your point, it's like, how could you, instead of like being prescriptive, how can you nudge people in the right direction? Like creating, like redefining the incentive structure for them to try to get them to maybe act in a different manner, sometimes unknowingly, right? It's not about tricking them. It's actually helping them help themselves. Because you're right, as you were saying this, one thing to realize, it's funny, I always think about, I had a colleague at Deutsche Bank, an options trader, longtime veteran, started literally as an analyst, grew up, and he consistently made money every year and ran these single stock options. It's highly complex, right? Lots of moving parts, lots of dimensions in the risk. And and lo and behold, like he was just, first of all, very counterintuitive as far as like how we had these discussions on the desk and you had the, some of these traders were like loud mouths and talking about how they were like long 200 million of this and short this. And then he always kept it pretty close to the vest. And I sat next to him. So I saw his risk. And oftentimes it was literally like the opposite of what some of the louder voices on the desk were. And it was also a lot tighter. But what I'm trying to say is inherently he had just become wired to trade optimally in ways that, you know, he made rational decisions in ways that most humans can't, right? It's almost like we're expecting every, in the same way as referred to Lewis Hamilton, like when he's out there driving and making those split second decisions or strategic decisions within a race, he's an outlier out there. And so the expectation that most humans are going to handle their retirements and resist the temptation of the burger, of the trade, buying the top, selling the bottom, you know, all these things that most people do is pretty unrealistic, right? And so there's another thing I detect throughout our conversations is this fundamental, true, deep care for the customer, like caring for what their problem is, like what they, I mean, it's pretty obvious, you may not realize it, but just listening to you talk about your different businesses, it's never about, oh, I was like, oh, I'm going to crush it and make all that money. And like, I'm sure it was a motivation. It was more about like, what do these people care about? Like, what's their problem? It starts with this. And that's very obvious from what you say. Again, I don't know if it's cautious, conscious or not, but it comes across. So that business, the 100 million in four years, what happens to this? Like, you keep building it? Did he get to billions or what ended up happening? Yeah, so it was a fun experience. But one of the things I realized, I was left a bit unfulfilled because what I realized is that it would be hard to scale. At first, I was having fun. Like I'd never really interacted with other people much. So let's say the first couple of years, it was fun getting to know other people, what the challenges were, like trying to try to help them solve those challenges. But I can say after like after a few years, I realized that I don't think I want to do this for the next 40 years or even 10 years for that matter. Like I want to do something that can make a bigger impact because I realized like there would be a point that I would be too busy, basically, right? Like I couldn't do this myself. So I'd hired a couple of people. But even then I was like, oh gosh, you know, like, I, I didn't have, I could have to hire like hundreds of people back then. This was like before it was easy to do virtual work. This is still, still kind of way before Zoom and Google Meet and a lot of, a lot of kind of cloud-based uh, VO software. There's very little ways to kind of work uh, remotely back then. 
So I, I kind of felt like, gosh, I might have to open offices all around the country. Like it just, it, the whole thing seemed like, okay, this isn't what I want to do. Like essentially it's like uh, building a brick and mortar business around the country to, to support a lot of clients. And so I became like kind of keen to think about like, well, how could I build this as a bit more of a, of a platform business? Like, is there a way that I could take the things I've learned how to do, which I did two things in particular pretty well with that business. Like one is I'd created a way to attract clients digitally you know, way before that was common. So I had a pretty good sort of digital acquisition mousetrap, so to speak. And then, you know, being an engineer, I spent a lot of time developing these back office tools that made it really easy to take clients through a sort of a risk and needs assessment and then be able to perform my own way of doing like financial planning and asset location and and then proprietary kind of like a quantitative approach to still, I'd say primarily passive, but like my own kind of special way of, of doing that, right? I would say. But what's interesting though is, is I didn't know this at the time, but the thing that I, the things I was really good at, right? So like really efficiently acquiring customers and then really efficiently onboarding them. Those were things that most financial advisors struggled with. And I just didn't know that because again, I didn't actually have a financial advisor background. I didn't know many other financial advisors. And so the long story less long is one of the custodians I worked with at the time was a TD Ameritrade. They had a national conference. They were pretty impressed with like how I'd done what I did. So they invited me to come speak at their national conference. I'd never spoken in front of a group before in my life. So I don't really know what to expect. So I flew up to San Diego, spoke at this conference. There were a thousand plus advisors there. There's probably a couple hundred that packed into this room to hear about how this like kid from the Midwest, I was, I was like 27 or something at the time. And so they're like, how did this person, like it was a highly unusual story, like hundreds of millions of dollars in assets, mostly from clients he met on the internet. Again, a story that was really unusual 15 plus years ago. So people were really intrigued. And so at that moment, that's the first time I started thinking about like, how could I turn this into a B2B2C platform business? Because advisors were very intrigued. Like, how can I plug into this? Is, you know, do you license this? Do you sell the leads? Like, do you license the software? And so, you know, started spending a couple of years really thinking about like, how could I build out some of these systems and tools for other small businesses, other independent financial advisors to use around 2011. So just a few years later, launched my second registered investment advisor business. It was called Formula Folios. So you kind of see the quant nerd in me coming out. It was like this let me show you like a very formulaic way to onboard, acquire clients, onboard clients and manage their money for them. And it worked quite well, right? So I, I kind of leveraged that first business to start the second business, second business, started the third business. And by that point, I'd sold my controlling interest in like that first wealth management firm. By the time I sold my interest, it was a few hundred million in assets. It was a very, very good business, but it was I just wasn't passionate about it anymore. So I wanted to solve bigger problems. And I felt like I could get a lot more leverage, right? If I could serve a thousand advisors, then each of those advisors could serve hundreds of clients. All of a sudden, I could serve hundreds of thousands of clients. Whereas it would have been a lot harder for me to do that if I had the amount of time and capital needed to build the direct wealth management business. So, so yeah, that was my second venture. Technically, my third venture was second RIA, Registered Investment Advisor Venture. Started writing the code in 2010, registered the firm in late 2011, started taking customers in 2012. Really, just it was myself and one other engineer, Eric Watkins. So shout out to Eric. But um, and we built the core platform and took it to market with a couple other employees, and it took off pretty quick. Like I'd say, like from from launch within five years, we had almost four billion in assets and, and growing really quickly, like hundred plus million a month of new assets. So the platform business worked really well. And again, it kind of was born out of kind of what I learned trying to scale a, a wealth management practice. That's incredible. What are the main tenets to, because you don't want to 
overlooked and without necessarily giving away the crown jewels here, but overlook your ability to raise assets. I mean, I could see that conversation in that room where <laughs> you probably had like middle-aged investment advisors who are like, how did you do this? Like, how on earth do you have a few hundred million dollars on the management? How'd you get people to trust you to do this over the internet? Yeah, so I, I think like, so one is that like, I got really good at online marketing. I should clarify by saying like, although it's like one of those strange things, like I didn't really maybe realize it at the time. But again, I think, it, and this is like perhaps like one of the nice advantages of if you have a bit of a engineering mindset, you just, you look at problems and you just go, okay, well, like, how do I solve them? I think a lot of consultants have that same type of a way of thinking. So, but I really started with the fact that like I had way more people interested in getting help from me than I could ever possibly serve. So if you can start there, that you're adding growing assets becomes pretty easy. And so the way I did it, like, I mean, the short version is that what I found is I was like, okay, well, I was kind of borrowing, I borrowed this, this idea really from Amazon. I thought about like Amazon's business at the time. And I thought, man, what a brilliant business. Again, this is like pre-2010. It was a brilliant business, but it wasn't as obvious to people back then as it is probably today. But this is like the retail side of their business. So like their cloud hadn't really become prominent yet. But the retail side of was quite brilliant. So I was like, okay, like what they're doing is they've got basically the largest online marketplace of products. And so anybody using the internet to do research on products is likely to find what they're looking for on Amazon. And so the, the example I give people often is like, what Amazon was doing really, really well is like, there's a difference between like a looky-loo, right? A looky-loo who's shopping for televisions just does a search query for good TVs 2023, right? Or whatever. So a serious buyer, they do a search query that is Vizio 75-inch ultra high definition 4K smart TV lowest price or something like that, right? And so, and that's where Amazon did really, really well, right? They had reviews, they had like long tail descriptions, they had, I mean, they had just so much content. So even though they didn't even have to control the inventory in these early days, right? Like they were just reselling. They built this monstrous database and the largest set of reviews, the best descriptions, photos, images, right? So like they just dominated. And obviously they had, once they reached a certain scale, they used their buying power to then become a wholesaler of the products that they now knew, you know, sold the most, right? So my thought was, by the way, when I was building this sort of, like, how do you acquire all these customers? Like my thought was simply, I was like, well, what if I built essentially a database of the things people are actually looking for? So giving a very specific example, one of the things I recognized was that from my very first venture that when people are getting close to retirement, as an example, they oftentimes start wanting to do some planning. So they go to the internet and they start typing in queries, searches, and they might even interview advisors. And then they're doing research on those advisors. They might be pitched investment products, then they do research on those products. And so I built a really big database of retirement-focused products. So if people were trying to sell structured notes, if they were trying to sell non-public REITs, if they were trying to sell BDCs, if they were trying to sell income annuities or index annuities or anything of those things, again, all these products that would be kind of commonly pitched, I built this like massive database of these products with detailed descriptions, independent reviews. And so for many of the top products in the country, like if somebody searched for a product, like for example, like whatever, like security benefit, secure income annuity for retirement or something like that, like I have the number one ranked page over the actual product manufacturers for almost every single one of these products very similar to how Amazon would outrank Samsung, right? If someone was doing a search for a Samsung TV, that 
Amazon would beat them in their own product, right? So I was doing the same thing for financial products. That was kind of like the, one of the secret sauces, if you will. I don't mind sharing it because it's been so many years. I mean, technically, probably anybody could do that nowadays, especially with, with AI, perhaps. But it was one of these things where like, I just had like a massive amount of inbound demand because what people would do is they'd be looking around and maybe they'd find these products and essentially there'd be a call to action that would say, hey, listen, like before you ever buy this or any product, like one of the most important things you should do is, is have an independent objective financial plan built to take that doesn't even think about the products, right? It just works like this. And if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, click here and we charge $500, 100% refundable if you're not happy with it, right? And it'll just help you decide like what you should actually do with your money. Like that was kind of the CTA, if you will. So anyway, long way of saying like, I think like, there's more to it than that, but it's like an example of like the things that we were doing, which was quite unique, I think, for the space, because I think so many people in our industry, they think if they focus all of their attention and energy on building the greatest financial product ever that has these amazing characteristics, but at the end of the day, most people don't understand. So like, then they struggle to distribute their product. They really could be like this amazing, like incredibly helpful, beneficial product. But like, if no one cares, no one can find you, then what does it matter? Right. So, so there's two things I was doing really well. One was like digitally attracting clients top of funnel. And then once they kind of came into funnel, we had this very systematic way. It was really pragmatic, right? So super logic based, like the average ordinary person could fully understand it. That would help them kind of move through a process to onboard. And it was very, again, it was all digital. So it was very systematic. Any human advisor could plug in and have success with it. So it's kind of the thing. But yeah, I think if people build amazing investment products without good distribution, like they're probably going to struggle a bit. I mean, that's super instructive. And again, I could tie it back to this wanting to meet the customer where their need is, right? It's like, what is really an understanding at a pretty granular level? What is it that they're looking for, right? What's their pain point? And I think you know, especially in a decade, the last decade of easy money, or a lot of money has been thrown to create these product-led growth schemes where you're sitting in the ivory tower and, and you're trying to figure out what customers potentially could be using or anticipating, as opposed to like reading the tea leaves, understanding where the pain points are, and really having, a, again, a deep level of care for what the real pain points are out there. I think it seems to be like a key differentiating factor here in, in your approach. And, and obviously, you have the track record to show for. So you grow this effort. And now, in your mind, are you fulfilling that mission? You said you wanted to tackle bigger and more important things on a larger scale. So you're not just an investment advisor helping people with their retirement. You're enabling this ecosystem. So what happens to that? Yeah, I mean, it was a very rewarding business. One thing I learned is uh, certainly I'm proud of those years. Like, it was a very good business. It became quite successful and quite profitable. And we, in a short amount of time, we acquired over 50,000 kind of customers and we're building thousands of financial plans for people all over the country and serving hundreds of independent advisors. And, but I still felt like it's one of these things I was like, gosh, like, I feel like I can and should do more. And what were some of the limiting factors there? And, and one of the big limiting factors was that we built all of that technology essentially on top of a pretty antiquated custodial system, right? So if those aren't aware, if you're an independent registered investment advisor and you acquire a client, if you're going to manage their money, that one of the things you have to do is open up an account for them at an independent custodian. And the biggest custodians in the business at that time were Charles Schwab, Fidelity, and TD Ameritrade. 
so we had relationships with all three and we're trying to manage all three of these custodial platforms and like the hair that broke the camel back camel's back for me to give some credit as, as much as like robin hood has done some things that i think it sounds like both you and i are a bit critical i think there's many things maybe that they maybe they shouldn't have done especially given the, the backgrounds of their founders since they were quants themselves and understood i think they might not be helping some of those end customers but but nonetheless one thing they did do is they certainly got into my head because i started watching downloaded the app and opened an account, put money into it and traded some fractional shares within minutes. And it was so easy. And then I thought, gosh, like we were opening hundreds of accounts per day and it would take sometimes four weeks or longer for the accounts to be opened, for money transfer to happen. It was at best using DocuSign, still many times using wedding signatures, many times still needing medallion stamp signature guarantees, sometimes the notaries, like physical checks floating all over the country. It was a very antiquated way of doing business. And and I kind of felt like one of our biggest problems is that the operating expenses to run a platform like I was running, I was like, I don't think there's a Six Sigma way I could get this to be under 35 basis points in cost. And I was very keen about like cost as being one of those things that I think that the lower it is, the better it is for a customer, as long as you're not compromising the quality. So if quality is the same, then cost obviously matters. And so I, I always kind of felt like, okay, we're going to build an incredible product, but how can I get it? How can I compress the cost? And I just kind of, I couldn't figure out a way that I could ever get the cost lower than 0.35% because of how painfully difficult it was to open, fund, trade, manage, bill, report on, administer, deal with cashiering requests of the existing custodians that were mandatory for us to work with. You had to have one, right, in order to help these clients. And then I see like this company Robinhood come along and and they're just, it's almost like they were laughing in our faces. Like, why would you hire an advisor? Like what a pain in the ass that is when you could just open up this account on your phone and start trading again and forget about like again, quality and kind of like what are the benefits to the consumer, but from an ease of use and a user experience perspective, I mean, they were crushing us. And so is every robo advice platform and digital platform out there. And so that's really like where my mind started shifting. And I thought, okay, how can I solve this? I was invited and joined Fidelity's advisory board. I became a very meaningful customer of some of those custodians. So I could get the ear of like certain people. And I just realized it's like, it's going to take them, it might take them decades and they still may never get it because they just, a startup operates very differently than a big incumbent. Like we just move faster. I generally think we work harder. Like, you know, we, we so many benefits, I think that's just going to make it really hard for them to ever catch us. And I think number of people actually slows you down. Like it introduces lots of bureaucracy and like there's tons of waste of time in terms of trying to like asynchronously connect people. And so so anyway, so I, I started getting very discouraged. Like, okay, human delivered advice is going to have a hard time if somebody can't fix the infrastructure layer, like the custodian clearing, account opening, like all these things. And then also like all of the things that they should do that they don't. Like people forget that an advisor, your custodian, even though they have the money there, they know what the values are every day. You can't do your billing at your custodian. Like you have to get your custodian to send you this esoteric flat file via SFTP so that you can then load it into a third party portfolio accounting tool to reconcile this, again, sort of like incredibly fragmented, highly non canonical file format to then replicate, hopefully with a high degree of accuracy, but not always, right? Like what the custodian values really were. So then you can even do things like calculate what your fee should be. So that way you can generate another file to then upload back to the custodian so you can debit the fees 
And by the time you do that, it's the data is already going to be two, three days stale. So there may not even be enough cash in the account by the time you go to sweep it, because by the time you got that file back, right, the positions may have changed. That's insanity, right? But that's the world like advisors have just accepted it. Like, this is just how it is. We just, just say, hey, like, these are the big custodians. Like, oh, really cool. They've got an API now that I can do nothing of any real practical use. But like, they would celebrate that. So I just, again, this is like, okay, here's this big problem. Like, if I could solve this problem, I could serve tens of thousands of advisors and I could serve tens of millions of customers, maybe a 50 million customers. I could reduce the friction so much that I could drop the cost of the entire industry of financial advice by a quarter basis point or more. That's super material. Like you know, I could take so much friction out of the mix. Maybe with enough automation efficiency, I could even bring minimums down. Like advisors could increase their capacity by two, three, four X. All of a sudden, the 30 million people who want access to a human financial advisor but don't have enough money to afford one could get access to them. Wow, what if registered investment advisors, which have a legal obligation to put their clients' interests before their own, became the new industry standard. And people didn't have to work with biased commission-based brokers, insurance agents, et cetera, right? Like, so my wheels started turning about like the, the what could happen if I really went after a massively big, huge, challenging problem. Because custody, by the way, is really hard. <laughs> if, if people think digital client account acquisition is hard, like then they should go build a custodian. Like It's like uh, extraordinarily difficult, like technically regulatory capital, like it is a challenge. But that's kind of what happened. So right, Formula Folio's great successful business. Eventually I sold it to private equity. The company has been since rebranded. Today it's still in existence. Serves, I don't know, probably manages eight billion or eight and a half billion or something in assets today. And but I stepped down in 2018 to launch the first ever fully digital, vertically integrated custodian for registered investment advisors. And that's what I've been building the last four and a half years. What was your experience in the handover and, and did you intend to stay with the business or were the wheels already in motion? You're like, all right, I built a great business. It's a sustainable business. It's continuously growing, but I'm on to the next mission, right? So did you at any point contemplate staying with the new owners or it was just, again, part of the plan? I recall you said you sold the first advisory business, you sold a controlling interest in it, moved on. Was it sort of the same intent? You're like, I'm ready to build the next thing. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Initially, I thought because it was a very profitable and nicely growing business, and I'd never taken outside money, I'd bootstrapped the business. So I had full 100% control of it. So my initial intent was, well, I'm just going to bring in a new CEO. I'll make myself available on a limited basis for maybe quarterly board meetings or on occasion if the, you know, kind of executive team needs me. And so I did that initially in 2018 by. 2019, it became apparent, you know, then six months it became apparent to me. I was like, this is going to be really hard. Like building a custodian is, it's an 80 hour a week job with no vacations for years, maybe a decade, right? Like if you're not willing to put that into it, then you're not going to succeed. And so how am I going to do that if I'm also still getting pulled back into certain things and just having a really hard time? And you have so much emotionally invested in a business you started like that. Like I was very proud of it. I built it good sized team. And and so it took me a while to remove myself emotionally. But once I realized like, look, I think I need to fully be out of the business. I'd always been circled by private equity firms that were interested in buying it. So I reached back out to someone who I knew and I knew that they'd have a team they could put in place to run the business and then process of, of selling the firm. So once I sold, I had basically no responsibilities whatsoever. I still had to stay on call if they needed me. 
for a defined time period, but it was pretty short. Like they probably called on me for 90 days <laughs> for a little help here and there. And then it was sort of like, okay, we don't need you anymore. Good luck with your new venture. And which point, by the way, it actually felt kind of bad. I was like, wait a minute. No, I am important. I am needed. And it was like, actually, I wasn't needed. Now, I will say the growth of the business slowed significantly. So it's it's probably not viewed as innovatively as it used to be. And the growth rates, like, it's more of like a steady 10% a year kind of growing business today, which is pretty common for like late stage private equity run businesses, but very profitable. So it's a different business that used to be, but I'm fully kind of, you know, very proud of the team that's still there running it. Like it's a, something I'm totally sort of, I don't think much about it anymore, but I'm grateful for my time there. I'm grateful for the new team that's running the business. Is it a sign though of your accomplishment that the business actually is doing great and they actually did not need as much as of you as, as you thought they would, right? Even though I, th- I think most likely like there's just a strong attachment, right? And founder attachment to the creation. But in, in many ways, it's the best validation one could ever have as a founder that you've built a machine that on a standalone basis is able to function. And you presumably you put best of breed managers in, in place and the thing is just humming along, right? Continuing on its journey. So kudos to you to have created that platform. And look, I mean, knowing how private equity works, it's not a business where you take a lot of risk on the downside, right? So you need a very, very sound business model, strong unit economics. You need the business to be profitable. You need the P&L to behave in a certain way because it's all about risk management. It's risk-adjusted returns. It's not swinging for the fences. How's the new endeavor going? I mean, you're you're now, uh, I would say, flush with venture capital. Obviously, it's probably... Actually, I'd love to hear why you thought it was important to raise outside capital to build this last business as opposed to bootstrap it. Yeah. So although I had a, I'd say a a very meaningful exit for my last company, I mean, honestly, even if I'd have taken every penny I'd made in my entire career, it wouldn't have been enough to build, to build Altruist. So, you know, the thing about building a custodian that's different than a a registered investment advisor, one, one of the biggest things is the regulatory requirements. So there's a tremendous amount of capital reserves that are required. The bigger you get, the more you have to have there's a really, really significant R&D requirement. So, you know, there's a lot of companies nowadays that like people will, you know, put a small team together, five or six people. Again, if you're building large, like that's like a front end layer type business, kind of like my last business where I didn't have to build the infrastructure layer. I just had to build a really elegant kind of middle office and front end and some proprietary portfolios. I mean, a lot of that work could be done with a very small team. This is the type of thing where it's like, we knew we would need a couple hundred subject matter experts, engineers, and we'd have to be able to give them multiple years. It's a bit more of a waterfall development project cycle versus like the highly iterative kind of agile process. There's still a lot of agile involved, but nonetheless, like, you know, it's, it's not, you can't like launch in six months and then iterate. It's like you have to spend two, three years building a self-clearing custodial platform and then launch it in one weekend. <laughs> you know, and that's just how it works. So so consequently, like I knew full, I kind of went in eyes wide open. I mean, I have invested a considerable amount of my own money in the business. I'm probably one of the super rare founders who we recently closed a large Series D in a tough market where a lot of people aren't able to raise money. And we did a $112 million round at a high valuation and higher valuation than, than we did our Series C and B and A and so forth. And I invested in it. So whereas about a lot of people at this stage, they're probably taking money out. I actually invested a few million more dollars in. So I'm continually trying to contribute and and capitalize the business myself. But it's one that it takes more than than my resources to do. And I think the other thing too, is that 
I actually believe with the right investors, you're going to be way better, right? You're going to be able to build a better board. You're going to have like incredible discipline. I think about our investors. So just give some flavor. Like one of our strategic investors is Vanguard and Vanguard's been incredible to work with. Like just, you know, so helpful, like to be able to learn from a company like that and their executive team, one of their senior leaders is board observer. He's just been incredible. Just how much that they have their former chairman and CEO, Bill McNabb is an investor and board member. And again, like what an incredible resource to have to be able to call on someone like Bill and ask, you know, how did you navigate the financial crisis and then coming out of it 5X, grow your AUM by $5 trillion. Like, tell me how you did that. Like, those are hard things to do. If you bootstrap a business, it's going to be hard to get people like that involved. And we have some great institutional investors. You know, Benrock was our first investor. Nick Byam is on our board, has become a dear friend and incredible mentor and just really helpful in building in like extraordinary team and really emphasizing like, you know, the team and the culture we set early and how that's going to help scale the business. So I think people sometimes think like outside money, oh, it can put on unneeded pressure. If you get the wrong investors and board members, look, it can be probably really arduous, you know. But I think that the flip side of that is like there's I'm very self-aware now that probably in the bottom half of intelligence of my of of altruists, like it's just incredibly smart, talented people. And our board's much the same way. And our board's largely made up of investors, like just really great investors. Our, the investors who led our Series B and our Series D is Insight Partners, just incredible operational excellence. Our Series C was led by Declaration Partners, which is David Rubenstein's family office, who's founder of Carlyle Group. Again, like just extraordinary people, incredibly well-connected. So when we've went and built a kind of a, who we've allowed to invest, it's a little bit different structure, you know, at Altruist. Like some companies are begging and pleading, pitching 50 times to get one uh, term sheet. We're very selectively choosing like, okay, well, who do we want to work with? Because we want it to be additive. Like we don't want a bunch of gray paint because, you know, just mix together some more gray paint. So who brings something to the table that's like highly unique and differentiated? And so I, I think like, again, there's a capital intensity. That's a very real thing. And then there's a, if you want to be a transcendent company, one that's like becomes a new industry standard and our ambitions are very, very high, you're going to need to have um, unbelievable people at every level, both internally and externally. So it's kind of like the why. I mean, in terms of like how it's going, I mean, it's going, going pretty well. Ironically, we stay pretty quiet. We're generally pretty austere. You know, we haven't talked a lot about the business publicly in the last few years. We've just been kind of heads down building it. But but some of the kind of things that are interesting is like, you know, depending on the metric you use, if it's like assets, for example, we're the fastest growing fintech company in the history of the United States. I mean, like by far, like it's not even actually close. In fact, I think if you took like the next five and combined them, they still didn't gather as much client assets as we did in, in their first few years. So so I think like, so this formula works, right? Like raise money from great people, assemble in a phenomenal team, have operational rigor, operate with some level of paranoia and urgency, <laughs> you know, and control what you can control, you know, and a lot of things we can't. So it's been, and I don't think any of those things would happen, by the way, if we didn't raise outside money. I think just me trying to do it again, I may have had so many biases from how I built my last company that I likely wouldn't have been able to assemble the team and get the results that we've gotten. Almost certainly wouldn't have been able to do it. That's fascinating. And it's just a testament to, I think, your drive to want to grow. And said at some point, you will lose your edge or you don't think it's necessarily healthy to, to keep. But what I meant by that also is just this passion to learn and to keep improving. Like at every step of the way, you found a bigger problem. The one thing I'd like to emphasize, though, is you're doing this and you're solving a very big problem. Like one of the mistakes that a lot of entrepreneurs make and investors as well is 
they fail to realize that the problem that's being worked on is actually not a large one. And it's one thing that I've observed fewer and fewer, especially at the very early stage, founders actually go through the exercise of clearly thinking, okay, how does this market scale, right? Going through the exercise of how many gas stations in the country, right? You'd be amazed at how few people do this at this stage. And I'll always urge founders to do that. And clearly, what you figured out at every step, and that's my takeaway from this conversation, because the whole thesis behind these types of conversations is how do you create something from nothing? Like, you know, you have a purpose and it's been purpose driven. And part of your agenda has been, all right, well, as I'm working on this, I feel like I've already moved on. There's this bigger problem that's looming in the background that I've identified. And big problems, if to your point, if executed well upon and if resourced properly and having, I would say, the poise to say, look, I'm not going to be able to do it by myself. Like this is actually the biggest problem I've worked on and I'm going to need other people to help me out with, right? Be able to do that is also part of the growth. So congratulations on getting to this point. I feel like listeners will have gained so much knowledge as to just looking at your career and the types of how you think about the world. And clearly, again, not to get into the secret sauce, but like there is something about your ability to build an asset base in what is a fairly unconventional way. Right. And so I'm sure it'll inspire people to listen to this and understand, okay, well, what can I do to emulate this? Or there are new ways to build this. But clearly, from an asset gathering standpoint, it's truly extraordinary. Right. There's a formula there that you've honed it over the years. And that's a common thread in that trajectory. So thank you so much for spending the time with us today. I walk up from this conversation with so much more knowledge about what you've built in the space you're in. It's been my pleasure. Yeah. And I think, like, the, uh, by the way, if there's a, a secret to that gathering of assets, like which has been, I guess, maybe thematic here, maybe oversimplifying it, but if everything you do is always to take the absolute best care of people and really put people first. I mean, the, my company today is called Altruist, right? And I think those who understand what altruism in, means, like you got to be a real big hypocrite if you're not actually like operating from a place of like the center of the universe is the customer. For whatever reason, a lot of people forget about that. And yeah, there's a lot of other things too. And I, plenty of science and great sort of experiments that can be run to mize kind of how we think about acquiring customers. But like at, at the very, very center, it's just like, just make them the, the center of the universe like and, and do everything you can to make their life better. It's a pretty good cheat code because like, sadly, there's just a lot of people who don't do that in our space. But this has been a ton of fun. Maxime, thanks for like asking such great questions and, and kind of the breadth of the journey, right? It's been actually kind of therapeutic being on. So it's had a ton of fun. Awesome. Thank you so much. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management, LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.